we have a kind of a traditional message that uh, that I do on um, Mother's Day and also on Father's Day, uh, but I wanted to mix it up a little bit. Um, it's so important for us to get a handle on who our God is. And Mother's Day is a perfect opportunity to kind of expand that awareness. But I wanted to start this way. Do you all know the difference between patriarchal and paternal? Patriarchal and paternal. They sound kind of the same. They both come from the Latin root word pater, which means father. Mater is mother, in case you were wondering. But they're very different. At least they're, they're different enough. Patriarchal obviously refers to a group or a system or a society that is completely controlled by men, all right, and typically has subjugated women in the process. Paternal is a group, a system, or a society where the leadership restricts the freedom, the autonomy, and the responsibility of the people, supposedly for their own good. Now, that leadership can be male or female, it can be anybody, but that is the basic difference. And there's a reason that I wanted to kind of try to point this out. For instance, our country started as a patriarchal system, obviously, like pretty much every civilization that has graced the face of the earth. There are a few systems in uh, China and India, Far East, uh, Africa, where women are in leadership and even property is passed down through the maternal line. But most anthropologists say that there really are no pure matriarchies in recorded human history. So United States, no exception, totally a patriarchy, all run by men and mostly white guys on, on top of that, right? And so you've got these men. Now, it's, it's amazing to me to think about this, but do you know when women were granted the right to vote? It was 1920, 19th Amendment in 1920, when women were granted the national right to vote. Now, I want you to think about this. The United States is 247 years old. That means for the first 144 years, women couldn't vote in national elections. It's only been 103 years since... So we still got 40 years to 50 years to catch up before it's at least equal. You know, it's just amazing to think about that. And uh, but you get this one for free. Who was the first woman to be elected to Congress, to a national office? Her name was Jeanette Rankin, and uh, she was elected to Congress in 1916, four years before. Women had a national right to vote because certain states had granted women suffrage previously, starting in as early as 1869 in Wyoming, right? What year was that, 1916? What state do you think she came from? It's amazing, but it was Montana. I think of any place there was going to be toxic masculinity, it would be Montana. They were the first ones to elect a woman. Here's, Here's where I'm going with this. The United States was patriarchal, But at the beginning, it was not paternal at all. In fact, it was wild and woolly. There was so few restrictions on the people at that time. In fact, the Articles Articles of Confederation that were first governing the United States were so loosey-goosey, so basically non-existent because the states were so worried about losing their control that in 10 years, the whole nation was falling apart and they had to call the Constitutional Convention. The Articles of Convention didn't even have any way to regulate commerce. They didn't have any head of foreign affairs. There, There was no way to do the things that nations needed to do on the world stage. So it was anything but paternal, yet it was patriarchal. Now fast forward to today. 
The United States is much less patriarchal. There's a third, almost a third of, of, uh, of women in Congress now. I think it's 28% or something like that. So much more women involved in leadership, much more women, many more women involved in, in decision-making in the country, and yet the com- country is becoming more and more paternal. More and more freedoms are being taken away. More and more restrictions on our autonomy for our own good, the government says. But think about it. It is both men and women who are doing the paternalizing. And so this is where we have to start thinking about it. Women and more and more in this country are taking the place of men in leadership. But are they creating the balance that we need between men and women, masculine and feminine? Or does power simply make men and women the same in the way that they deal with it? And of course, where we're going this morning is, is God patriarchal or is God paternal or both or neither? Now, obviously, God is portrayed as patriarchal, right? He's portrayed as male, especially in our scriptures. But is that really what God is, or is that just a reflection of the culture that produced the scriptures? And I know that can start a whole argument about the inspiration of scripture and how we understand scripture, but just for right now, just let that one be. God is portrayed as patriarchal, but is he paternal? Now, we probably wish he were a little bit more so, so that he would take better care of us. We would certainly give up, I think, a little bit of our freedoms in order to have God kind of smooth out the rough edges of our lives the way we've we've lived them. But according to Jesus and according to the way that we have experienced God, God is radically unrestricted. God is all about freedom, God is so much about freedom that he lets us make our own choices, that he lets us deal with circumstances as they are. Portrayed as patriarchal, not paternal at all. Why is this important? Does it make any kind of difference if we understand God in this sort of way that I'm trying to point out. How important is it for us to understand God as Jesus is showing us? Obviously, I think it's absolutely, critically important. And here's the reason. I got asked a question a few years ago, and I usually start um, these Mother's Day messages with this question because it was so surprising on one side and, and then also just fundamental on the other. She asked me, I know that God loves me, But how do I know if God likes me? I want you to think about that for a second. I know God loves me, but how do I know if God likes me? Why ask a question like that? Is that question important? Well, think about it. Liking someone implies affection, right? It implies genuine delight or pleasure in the other person's company. Implies a playful attention, a desire to be with. It implies fun, having fun with someone. Liking is what we actually, let me put it this way if someone likes us, that's how we feel and know that we're loved. It's the liking part of it. It's that affection, it's that delight, it's how the, the face lights up when you walk into the room. Now, we're commanded to love. God commands us to love. God commands us even to love the enemy. But notice that God never commands us to like anyone. Why? 
because it's not possible to command us to like anyone. This is why liking is so precious. We can choose to love. We can be commanded to love, but not to like. That liking is not under our control. If it were, I would like broccoli. And maybe not bacon. (laughs) If we know God loves us, why do we doubt that God likes us? One, maybe because we know how unlikable we can be and how could God possibly like us because we know. But I think the second, maybe more important reason is that we focus on God as father. We focus on God as male. We focus on love as justice and obedience to justice. And that we associate maybe with our human father, where love was earned approval. We had to earn approval. It didn't just come to us. And the world backs that up. The world has the same system. It's pay to play, right? We have to perform in order to find our approval. But is this the correct focus? Is this the way we're supposed to be focusing on God? Because if we focus on God as father, what about mom? Because generally, mom likes us, doesn't she? A lot more easily than father. She likes us without pre-approval. And so the question has to be, is God mother as well as father? Now, there's no mother God in the Bible. You can look for it all you want to, but you won't find God referred to as mother in the Bible. But look for God as feminine. Look for God as female. Yes, that's all over the place. And this is maybe what we don't know, what we don't really understand because of our patriarchal society, because of our patriarchal church that has taught us not to really look any deeper, to see the balance that is there in Scripture. And here's something that you can put on your fridge, all right? We will never know Father God until we know Mother God. There is no way to do that until we can know love beyond just duty, love beyond mere justice. When we know love all the way to playful affection, when we know love all the way to desire and delight, now we're understanding something about our God, something about the God that Jesus was trying to show us. Now, the language of Scripture is our first clue. Even before we get to Scripture itself, the language of Hebrew and Aramaic are telling us something. And we go over this every year. I'm going to do it kind of briefly, although we got some new faces, so i got to make sure that I get you enough of this. In Hebrew, the word for father is ab. Aleph, bet are the two letters. We would say A and B. Now, Aleph means the strongest or the, the most excellent of any system or form. And it can be the greatest tree, it can be the greatest uh, animal, the greatest person, but that is what the Aleph stands for, its greatness. And each letter of the Hebrew alphabet has uh, a meaning. And so you string those meanings together letter by letter and create words that are the sum of those meanings, all right? So Aleph means strong. Bet is the, uh, is the word for house. So literally, father means strong house. And that's the way the Hebrews understood father, as Ab, 
as a strong house. He was like the tent pole that held up the tent. He was the one who gave structure to everything. He was king and executioner and judge and jury, all of those things to the clan, to the family. He was the one who gave the strength to the house and kept it going. Now, mother is M. And even though it's pronounced with an E, it's still Aleph. Aleph can be pronounced as an A or an E. And then Mem, the R-M word. And that literally means strong water. The M, you can even see the ripples of the water still in the original pictograph. But strong water, what in the world does that mean? But when the Hebrews tanned their hides, they would boil them in, in, in vats of water. And what would come to the surface was this thick, sticky substance that they would scrape off and literally use as glue to to glue things together, glue their tents together and whatnot. So the idea of strong water is this sticky substance because they understood the mother as the glue that held the family together. The father was the strong house who gave structure to the institution, but the mother was the heartbeat of the house, the one who brought all the relationships together. She was the one who created the intimacy. Strong house, Strong water. This is a balance that is being struck between accomplishment and performance and relationship and compassion, between being and doing, between Martha and Mary. Do you see the balance here between the two? The Hebrew mind couldn't conceive of one without the other. The two worked completely together. Both were essential, both were necessary, they were complementary. This is the way their lives work. This is the only way their lives work. In a subsistence culture, this was survival. This was how the family continued. This is how the house stood. Now, human fathers and mothers were like this in the, in the Hebrew conception, but now what about God? Is God father? Is God mother? Is God both? Is God neither? Is there a mother God in Scripture? As I said, not per se, but let's take a look and see what we can find. First of all, in Proverbs 1, starting at verse 20, and they are in the insert that's in your handouts, and uh, Brandon will be putting them up, I'm sure. Proverbs 1, starting at verse 20, Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. So here's wisdom, chokhmah in Hebrew. This is wisdom personified as female, always as female. There are so many words in Hebrew that are feminine words that we don't even realize. And how would that change our understanding? Wisdom is understood as a feminine quality because knowledge is something that you can attain. Wisdom is something that you experience. It's only in the intimate experience that you gain the wisdom, not just the data, not just the accomplishment of learning something, but now the living in relationship, the living through incidents that give you the wisdom that complement the knowledge. But ruach or ruha in Aramaic, which means spirit, malkutha, which means kingdom, Shekinah, which means the dwelling, which was understood as the presence of God, all of those are feminine words. So think of this. Spirit, kingdom, God's presence are all feminine. The spirit literally should be referred to as she, 
kingdom should be queendom because it's a feminine word. And God's presence, very presence, is understood as the intimacy of a mother's love. So here, just in the words themselves, we're balancing wisdom and intuition and intimacy with intellect, accomplishment, and performance. But both together, inextricably linked, necessary and complementary. Take a look at Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord says, When Israel was a child, often Israel is portrayed as an individual person. When Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. But the more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. My people sacrificed to Baal. They burned incense to idols. Yet I was the one who taught Israel to walk. I took my people up in my arms, but they did not acknowledge that I took care of them. I drew them to me with affection and love. I picked them up and held them to my cheek. I bent down to them and fed them. Is that beautiful? God is often anthropomorphized as female in that mother's role. One of the names of God is El Shaddai, normally just translated as the mighty one or the mighty God. But literally, you know what it means? I sometimes get in trouble for this. Shaddai is the Hebrew word for breast. And so literally, El Shaddai is the mighty teat. Why would they call God El Shaddai? Because they understood him in this way. God was the one who suckled them. God was the one who provided everything that they needed. God was the one in that role for them as mother and they as suckling infants. It's so important to see this in the very words themselves and then the words that make up the passage of Scripture then come alive with this balance that is being struck here. There are many more references to God as female. Take a look here. Hosea, again, thirteen, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 8. God is described as a mother bear. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and tear them asunder. In Deuteronomy 32.18, God is described as a woman who gives birth. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Isaiah 42.14, God is speaking as a woman in labor here. God, for a long time I have held my peace. I have kept myself still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. Isaiah 49.15, God is comparing him, herself, to a nursing mother. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Isaiah 66.13, God is speaking as a comforting mother. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Psalm 131, verse 2, David is seeing God here as mother also, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like the weaned child that is with me. Into the New Testament, Matthew 23, verse 37, and also mirrored at Luke 13, 34, God is speaking as a mother hen here. This is Jesus, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, 
and you were not willing. There's so much imagery in the Old Testament especially of God as a bird, as the mother bird, building the nest, covering with the wings. Take a look at Deuteronomy. I, I didn't have room for all this, but you have the, the verses there if you want to look them up later. Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. Like the eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, God spreads wings to catch you and carries you on pinions. Ruth 2.12. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Psalm 17.8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57.1. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Psalms 91.4. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. That one is really interesting to me because it uses feminine imagery but with masculine pronouns. Kind of an interesting mix there, right? Now, does the Bible ever refer to Mother God? No. If the Hebrews understood God, and they did, as having both masculine and feminine attributes, why didn't they refer to God as Mother? There's one possible argument that made sense to me from a scholar, and see how it sits with you. But it's just another part of the puzzle. Despite these maternal images, the ones, all the ones we've been reading, the Bible never used the feminine gender for God and never called God mother. In an ancient patriarchal culture, and make no mistake, the ancient Hebrews were patriarchal, it is not surprising that the ancient Hebrews used masculine pronouns for God. But we should not take that to suggest that God is masculine only or male. According to the Hebrew scholar Samuel Terrian, the reason the ancient Hebrews never called God mother was that they reacted against the allurement of the mother goddess cult because they somehow sensed the difference between true divinity and deified nature. Now Israel was in the midst of all those Canaanite religions that were all goddess cults in, in the way he's going to speak of these. According to Terrian, ancient mother goddess worship, unlike certain mo modern day revivals, was never about empowering or glorifying women. It was about glorifying nature with a capital N. Ancient goddess worship didn't arise from a veneration of female humanity, but rather from an identification of the divine with nature itself. In essence, Mother Earth was worshipped as Mother Goddess. All the primary attributes of nature, fertility, sexuality, life, health, death, were associated with the ancient mother goddess cults that surrounded the fledgling nation of Israel as it left Egypt. These religions tended to merge sex with religious ecstasy and economic security, agriculture, and husbandry. And many of their religious rituals involved sexuality and temple prostitution. The law and customs of the Hebrews as they left Egypt steered them onto wholly different ground from the polytheistic and nature religions around them. Instead of a culture focused on death and the afterlife, Israel was focused on life and this present existence. Hebrews were forbidden to communicate with the dead, to embalm or mummify their dead. Even to touch a corpse was to become ritually unclean. They fiercely worshipped only one God, and their law prohibited them from making any drawing, sculpture, or representation of their God, who was pure spirit and could not be worshipped through idols. 
Hebrews were prohibited from all the religious actions of the ancient nature and mystery religions around them in an attempt to keep them distinct as a culture and focused on their one God. The Old Testament silence in calling God mother was not meant to deny God's feminine attributes. It was an attempt to emphasize God's transcendence over nature and to steer the Hebrew tribes away from the ancient goddess religions that overemphasized God in nature and nature as God. At the same time, calling God father was not meant to imply that God had only masculine attributes or was somehow male. The Old Testament consistently merges the images and metaphors of the strength and provision of fatherly God with motherly compassion and love, as the maternal images suggest. This is the balance that we see. If we really read the scriptures, if we read them with an open mind, and you women may be thinking, well, this still doesn't wash very much. She still, they still should have called, called God mother. All right, sue the Hebrews. What can we say? But that balance is there. It is there for us to see. Now you may be asking, how can God be both father and mother at the same time? How does that work? As a metaphor, think about this. The earth is round and flat at the same time, isn't it? The earth is round in fact. We know that now. We've been out there and we've looked back at it. We realize it's a sphere. It's round. But in our day-to-day experience... It's flat. We rely on that flatness. That's how we survive. It's how we set a table. It's flat. It's round in fact, but it's flat in experience. In this same way, God is Father in fact. God is Father as we conceive of God in our minds. But God is Mother in our day-to-day experience. That's the way it works. God is strong house, in fact, but God is strong water in our day-to-day experience, in the compassionate love that we experience, in the relationships that we experience every single day. We experience God as mother in that day-to-day reality before we ever are going to experience God as father. And before we can know Father, remember know in Hebrew, yada means, it came from the word hand, it means to intimately experience, to know something through intimate experience. If we are going to know God the way the scriptures tell us we must know God, we can only do that through the experience of Mother God day to day. This is the balance that scripture is trying to strike for us. Now, Jesus had an intimate relationship with his father, God. In fact, he called God Abba. Abba is the word that Hebrew children used for their daddy. It meant intimacy. It meant connection. It was the daddy that you could crawl into his lap. That was the kind of of word that he used. And so he had an intimate relationship with his father, God, that otherwise was understood as the king of the universe, far off, up on a pedestal, someplace far away. But Jesus calls him Abba, which brings a whole different understanding to the people who were first listening to him. How did Jesus get this experience of God as Abba? Well, he first had to experience God as Ima, 
This is what a child says for mommy. And he experienced Ima first in Mary, his mother, of course. For Jesus and for all of us, until we experience Mother God, Father God remains distant. Father God remains out there someplace and a little bit scary. Father God is not Abba to us until we have experienced God as Ima first. Now, how did this affect Jesus? How did this affect his relationships, his teaching style, everything that he did day to day? Think about how Jesus operated. Jesus always led with mother. Hmm? Jesus led with relationship. Jesus led with acceptance before anything else. Then he moved into father role, teaching, healing, giving instruction, telling someone, sin no more. Go out, but sin no more. That came after he had already established the relationship, established the connection. Because without that connection, we miss the whole point of learning anything further from Jesus. Think about the end of Mark 1 and moving across the bar line into Mark 2. Jesus does three things in succession. He heals a leper. He heals a paralytic that was lowered down through the roof because they couldn't get in through the front door. And then he calls Levi or Matthew from the tax booth. He does these three, three things all in succession. And again, we keep saying it. Anything that is put together, juxtaposed in Scripture, pay attention to that proximity because they're meant to be understood together. That's why they were put there. Nothing happens by chance in the Scriptures. But Jesus comes upon a leper what was a leper in that, in that, uh, in that time, in, in, that, in, in that society? A leper was an outcast. A leper had a contagious disease. You could touch a leper and become unclean. In fact, if you touched a leper, you were ritually unclean, and you couldn't do anything else until you were declared clean by the priests at the temple and had done everything that they told you how to do. So as soon as a leper came anywhere near uninfected people, they were obligated to say unclean, unclean, and then everybody could give them a wide berth. They weren't allowed inside the city walls. They were outcasts. They had to live outside. They couldn't engage in any kind of commerce, any kind of trade, which means they were beggars at that point until they were finally declared clean again. Jesus comes upon this leper. The leper says unclean. What does Jesus do? He walks up to him and touches him. Before he heals him, he touches him first. He risks infection. He risks being ritually unclean, but he touches him first. He breaks that ritual boundary, and then he heals. When the man is, laid, is lowered down through the roof of the room, what's the first thing he says to him? He knows why he's there. He knows why his friends ripped out the roof in order to lower him down. But he says, son, and the word he used there, son, is the word he used for his most intimate friends. He's already showing the connection. Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, you are totally in relationship and communion with us. And then he heals. And when he's walking by the toll booth, he's walking by the, the, the taxation it really was a toll booth. He collected tolls for people that were taking goods and uh, across the road. He just looks over his shoulder and says, Levi, come follow me. Levi can't get out of that booth fast enough. For anyone to even give him the time of day, not, not, not to mention someone with a standing that Jesus had among the Jews, for a Jew to call 
a tax collector who were seen as Roman collaborators and were hated because most of them were crooked and, and oppressed the people. And Jesus, without any thought to who he was or what he had done, come follow me. And Levi is so excited, he invites Jesus to dinner that night, and Jesus accepts another faux pas. You would never go into the home of someone who stood outside the law. Jesus does that. He breaks ritual boundaries. He breaks theological boundaries. He breaks social boundaries in order to establish the connection before he does anything father-like. Healing, that's an accomplishment. That's a father-like Right before he does any instruction, before he does any teaching, it's establishing the connection with mercy and compassion. That's it. That's what it's about. Leading with mother. We, any of us, any person on this planet, is only going to be healthy, is only going to be balanced in this order. Mercy and compassion before justice, before obedience at least in the micro. In one-on-one relationships, it's mercy and compassion first. We lead with that. We establish that. And then we can move on to wherever this relationship is going to go. Now, in the macro, in the group, yeah, you lead with justice because without justice, the group falls apart. And then hopefully the individuals will reestablish the mercy and compassion within their institution. But in one-on-one relationships, we're leading with mother. Jesus is always leading with mother. He's showing us how it works. Mother before father. Acceptance before the standards of performance that you need in order to be a part of the group. Now, some of us didn't grow up with this kind of experience. Some of us didn't grow up with a mother's love. I've talked to some of you. It's sad when there is nothing in the child's experience of the unconditional liking that is usually the province of the mother. But somebody has to give a child that in order for them to have enough of a base to be able to work on. And yet some of us didn't grow up with that, that unconditional liking before we had to gain approval, earn approval, perform for approval. And without that experience, life is frightening. We go through life always wondering if we're worthy. We go through life wondering if we are good enough because we've never had the experience of just being loved and beyond that, being liked. Without that experience, it's hard to imagine that God likes us at all and especially likes us for no reason except we're just here breathing and for no other reason, and for nothing else that we did, how are we going to ever be able to believe that if we've never experienced it? But whoever has failed us in life, God is mother. Mother God is always giving us another chance. See, that's why here at The Effect, we stress so much contemplative practice and contemplative prayer. Our minds are the repository for all that hurt, all that abandonment, all that neglect. Everything that says that we're not enough, everything that says we're not worthy, everything that says that we stand on the outside looking in, that is contained in our heads, in our minds. And as long as God remains in our thoughts only, then he remains father 
only as a concept, a concept always demanding performance for approval. As long as we keep God there in our thoughts as a concept, that is the reality that we must endure. But when we silence our thoughts in centering prayer, in contemplative practice, in mindfulness, in meditation, when we move out of our head, leave those thoughts, leave all that programming behind, when we start to live moments in pure presence, that's when we meet Mother God, when all that is silenced and we can just be spirit to spirit, face to face, that's when we meet Mother God. And for many of us, this may be the first encounter with true Mother's love that we've ever had. And that changes everything in our experience. In Hebrew, there are two words that, ex- that um, describe prayer. One is keva, and the other is kavana. Keva and kavana express the paradox that we're trying to ride here in experiencing God as father and mother. I want to read you one last bit about the way Hebrews looked at prayer and see if this ties bow on this thing. There is a specific difficulty of Jewish prayer. There are laws, right? How to pray, when to pray, what to pray. There are fixed times, fixed ways, fixed texts. This structure and routine of prayer is called keva in Hebrew. On the other hand, prayer is also worship of the heart, the outpouring of the soul, an inner devotion called kavanah in Hebrew that literally means intention, sincere feeling, or direction of the heart. Thus, Jewish prayer is guided by two opposite principles, order and outburst, regularity and spontaneity, uniformity, individuality, law and freedom, duty and prerogative, empathy and self-expression, insight and sensitivity, creed and faith, the word and that which is beyond words. In other words, father and mother, right? These principles are two poles about which Jewish prayer revolves. Since each of the two move in the opposite direction, equilibrium can only be be maintained if both are of equal force. However, the pole of regularity usually proves to be stronger than the pole of spontaneity, and as a result, there is a perpetual danger of prayer becoming mere habit, a mechanical performance, an exercise in repetition. The fixed pattern and regularity of our services, our religious services, tends to stifle the spontaneity of devotion. Our great problem, therefore, is how not to let the principle of regularity, keva, masculine, father, impair the power of spontaneity, kavana, intimacy, devotion, feminine, It is a problem that concerns not only prayer, but life as a whole. In prayer, halakha is is the word for the Jewish law, insists upon the presence of inward intention, of kavanah, over mere external performance. Maimonides, a 12th century Jewish philosopher, declared, prayer without kavanah is no prayer at all. 
Whoever has prayed without kavanah ought to pray once more. (laughs) Those whose thoughts are wandering or occupied with other things need not pray until they have recovered their mental composure. Now there's a good rule of thumb, huh? And he takes it further. Hence, on returning from a journey, or if one is weary or distressed, it is forbidden to pray until the mind is composed. Oh, I like that one. Let's put that one on our fridge. The sages said that upon a turning from a journey, one should wait three days until rested and the mind is calm, then pray. Prayer is not a service of the lips. It is worship of the heart. Words are the body. Thought is the soul of prayer. If one's mind is occupied with alien thoughts while the tongue moves on, then such prayer is like a body without a soul, like a shell without a kernel. And so it is with words of prayer when the heart is absent. And so it is with words of prayer when the heart is absent. Prayer becomes trivial when ceasing to be an act in the soul. The essence of prayer is agadah, inwardness. Yet it would be a tragic failure not to appreciate what the spirit of keva does for prayer as well. Raising it from the level of an occasional experience to that of a permanent covenant. You see that? It is through the structure of Kiva that we belong to God, not occasionally, intermittently, but essentially, continually. Regularity of prayer is an expression of my belonging, which remains valid regardless of whether I am conscious of it or not. We need both. We need the structure. We need the discipline to the structure or nothing happens at all. But if we don't bring our whole heart and soul to it, then nothing happens at all. We need keva and we need kavanah. We need both structure and intention. We need mind and heart, routine and spontaneity, logic and intuition, duty with playfulness, justice and mercy, loving and liking, father and mother. Without both halves of this paradox, we are only half a person, and we are not living in kingdom or queendom. Without father, there is no strength, but without mother, there is no reason for the strength in the first place. Until we embrace God as both father and mother, we are loved and lost at the same time because we don't know that we're liked. It's a paradox. And it's a paradox that must never be resolved. God is the oscillation between father and mother forever. Either alone does violence to the understanding of God in our tradition is violence to the understanding of God that Jesus is trying to bring across to us. It's only in this oscillation, back and forth, between father and mother, that we do find, finally, the perfect parent who both loves us and likes us. And Jesus shows this most beautifully in the story of the prodigal son, doesn't he? Prodigal, we sometimes think it means the return from wandering. No. Prodigal means extravagant or wasteful. That's what the younger son did when he went off with his father's money. He spent it all. 
just wastefully and extravagantly. But if you really think about what this story means, it's really not about the son at all. It's about the father. The title of the story should be the, the prodigal father. He's the one who is extravagant and wasteful. This prodigal father. Or as one scholar said beautifully, it should be called when dad acts like mom. I love that. And you all know the story. Man has two sons. One is the stalwart one, the loyal one who stays and does everything according to Hoyle. And the other one is kind of the, uh, the goofball, right? And finally, at one point, just asks his dad for his share of the, of the inheritance. And amazingly enough, the father gives it to him. He could have had him stoned at that point. But instead of that, he gives him his portion of the inheritance. He runs off, spends it all. And when he is at his lowest, in Hebrew terms, when he is sleeping with the pigs, an unclean animal in the most disgusting thing and circumstance that Jews could imagine, he finally comes to his senses and says, even the hired hands are living better than I am. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell my father that I don't deserve to be your son anymore, but just take me on as one of your hired hands. That'll be enough. And you can imagine him rehearsing this over and over as he's walking the long journey back home again, not knowing that his father every single day was watching the rise of the path that led to his property for any sign of his son's return. And when he does see him, he lifts up his robes and he sprints to his son. And I've said this many times that uh, Hebrew patriarchs do not run. It, it is unbecoming, and Hebrew patriarchs do not show their skin. You know, that's immodest. He doesn't care. He just runs and sprints. And you can see that young boy covered still with excrement and filth, bracing for impact. And when his father reaches him, he wraps his entire body around him. The scriptures say that he kissed him, but the Greek understanding there is he couldn't stop kissing him was the way that inflection really works. And of course, when he comes back and he orders the calf to be killed and the party to be prepared, the uh, older son comes out of the field and he is in, incensed and angry. And here is the, the, the conflict, the upshot. The older son who has done everything right will not go into the party because his father is disrespecting him by bringing the young son back in again. I want you to notice what's happening here in this story. The father is standing perfectly balanced between his two sons, right? Perfectly between the two sons. On the one side, he is standing between impulse, passion, and spontaneity. And on the other side, between routine and structure and performance, he's standing perfectly balanced between Mary and Martha, between these two poles that we experience all the time in our lives, day in and day out. And notice that these two sons never resolve in the story. One is not declared right and the other wrong, ever. They are left in that tension. They are left there. But they're blended into unity by the love and by the action of their prodigal father. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. It's that unity, it's that balance that is the key here. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. It is not one or the other. It never is. It never can be. It has to be both. And it has to be the oscillation between the two. 
Sometimes God looks like father and sometimes he looks like mother. Sometimes our look, life looks like structure and sometimes it looks like passion and spontaneity. And it should ever be that way. That's the way that we blend the two into one without resolving the paradox that needs to stand in our lives for as long as we're breathing here. Women have been subjugated most of human history. And that must change. And thank God it is changing. Maybe not fast enough, but it is changing. But there is something to be aware of here. Because becoming liberated doesn't just mean that we establish a matriarchy in place of the patriarchy. Wielding masculine father power in order to subjugate others. It seems like every side of every issue today is trying to wield that masculine father power to subjugate the other side. What we need is mother balancing all of our interactions, everyone that we do, both personally and also publicly, in the political arena, but also in our own lives. We need mother balancing this need to try to control, to try to subjugate, to try to make things bend to our wishes and to our will. Because without that balance, matriarchy is just another patriarchy run amok, no matter what we call it. If we feel the need to try to co-opt God to our side, whatever side that happens to be, we've missed the whole point. We've missed God. But God, as father and mother, is God's call to co-opt us, to become mirrors of his of her balance and fullness in the lives of every single one of us. To me, that's what remembering Mother's Day and Father's Day is all about, bringing the balance back together and understanding our God as that perfect balance, as that perfect parent. Let's pray. Father, that's who you are. It is so hard for us. You know how hard it is for us. But you are this perfect balance. Help us to become better friends with the concept. Help us to understand what that balance means. But then, not just leave it in our minds, but bring it down into every experience of our lives so that we are living that balance. We are leading with intimacy and compassion, but we still have the structure and the discipline and the backbone to do what we need to do in life, both appropriately timed, guided by love, and brought into each relationship so that we can go beyond love into really liking the life that we're leading. Father, thanks for all of this. Thanks for doing it first. Never let us forget we can only love or like because you did it first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.